Well, I'll say it again. I appreciate Wesley's heart and ministry and his music. Don't, don't you appreciate him? I always feel for these guys and gals, you know, because us preachers, we do a couple, then we're off a couple. We do a couple, then we're off a couple. These guys do everyone. Well, you know what? They did get last night off, so I'm not going to. You guys don't care, do you? No, I'm appreciative of that, and so thank you. And to do it uh, with quality and care, I, I, I appreciate that so much. And I appreciate you. I'm thankful that God has given us another beautiful day to gather here uh, in His presence with each other. I believe there's something that He wants to do. And even if you got out of bed on the wrong side this morning, you know, we're all grumpy from time to time especially when we do life together for 10 days or so, we all get a little bit grumpy. And I've never understood that getting out on the wrong side of the bed because I've gotten out on both sides and been grumpy before. <laughs> However it may be, I, I'm thankful that when you get into a setting like this and we start to sense His presence so near that um, the things that might have grumped us up, is that how you would say that? Uh, just slowly begin to go, and I'm, I, I'm so thankful for that. And if you have your Bible today, I want us to turn to Mark chapter 9, please. Mark chapter 9. I'm actually going to step back about five years or so in my study, in my preaching cycle. I have a tendency to preach where I'm studying in the Word. It keeps me honest, and it hopefully keeps me from being one of those guys that if you've heard me, you've heard me. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but there are those guys that if you've and gals that if you've heard them, you've heard them. And I never want to be that guy. I want to continually grow. I want to continually be changed. And, and hopefully preaching will um, be evidence of that. But I haven't been able to get it away from this today. And so the good news, the reason I, I don't need to tell you that, but the reason I do is there's good news to that. I haven't preached this in a while, so it'll probably be short. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but the more you spend time in a particular area and the more you preach something, you're a pastor, so you have to do something different every week. But I mean, the more you spend time there, the sermons get longer and longer and longer. I thought for sure I'd hear an amen from that. But, uh, you know, this one, I, I just basically want us to be reminded of what's going on in the text. I want us to see the problem. I want us to find the solution. Uh, because, as I said the other night, it's amazing to me, no matter how much we progress, man's condition is always the same, man's need is always the same, and the answer remains the same as well. Aren't you thankful in a day where things are spinning out of control, there are always constants, and He is our constant. So Mark chapter 9, we'll begin reading in verse 14. And when Jesus came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him greeted him. And Jesus asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And wherever it seizes him, it throws him down he foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. He answered him and said, O faithless generation, 
How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought the boy to Jesus. And when the spirit saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him. And he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, actually it's better translation, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, Deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. And he became as one dead, so that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Now, if you were here the other evening and... and as we begin to look at the book of Habakkuk, you'll remember that I made mention that at least in my life, and I want to include you in this, I think it's safe to do that, I found that there seems to be this natural tension between faith and doubt. We know what God has said, and in circles like this, I assume that we believe with all our heart what He has spoken. He'll keep His promises. We know what his ability is, we believe that, but yet sometimes what we see begins to interfere with what we believe. There seems to be this natural tension that plays out this dissonance between faith and doubt. It seems like it's always been the battle. It seems like it will always be the battle. And that really, if you wanted to narrow it down, that's really the struggle that we see playing out in our text today. Now, you remember the context of our text. Um, Pastor Morgan, the other night, opening night, used the scene on the Mount of Transfiguration in ch- at the beginning of chapter 9 to set the stage for this entire camp. You'll recall that it was after Jesus had made his first acknowledgement that he is the Messiah, verbally said, now that you know who I am, affirming his identity for the first time, let me tell you what I've come to do. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to my enemies. I'll suffer at their hands, bleed, and ultimately die and be buried. But that won't be the end because on the third day I will rise again. It's the first time in over three years of walking with the disi- Jesus that the disciples hear him using this kind of language. And you'll remember we're in that section, the nature of the kingdom section that bridges the kingdom going public and the kingdom being realized in chapter 11, where we begin to see things like we've never seen before. And this causes struggle within them. 
It's Simon Peter, the one who had this great affirmation, the one who had said, you're the one that we're looking for, who now says, you're not going to die. And so it begins a struggle for the first time in three years that Jesus has not experienced with his inner circle. It was common to the religious leadership. They had unmet expectations their question was, how could Jesus be the Messiah? How could he be the one when he's not even as holy as we are? It's unmet expectations. And now the disciples are believing for a conquering king, the one who will go into Jerusalem and overthrow Caesar and establish a, a, an earthly throne. And when Jesus starts to talk in suffering servant language, they don't like it. So the dissonance, the struggle begins it's carried through six days and then up on the mount. We watch where the announcement is made. And this is what Pastor Morgan so beautifully said to us the other night. As, as the discussion is going on between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, Peter interrupts because he doesn't know what to say. I love a guy who will speak because he doesn't know what to say. But he, he begins to interrupt in God. There comes a time that interruptions must cease. There's a divine interruption, and God says to Peter, shut up. Okay, well, maybe that's harsh language, but that's the thrust of the whole thing. Hush! Be quiet. This is my son. Hear him. See, there's a transfiguration that has to go on in our lives. If we are going to be kingdom men and women, we have to set aside, we have to surrender what we believe the kingdom to be, and we need to embrace what the king has established we need to embrace the kingdom as he says. The nature of this kingdom is only defined by its king. It's not up to you. It's not up to me. It's up to him. Listen to him. And you remember we have the, the imperative, the command later in, in, in the epistles. Be transformed. Transfigured. How? By the renewing of your mind. We have to listen to him. And let me just ask you this to tie into the opening service. Have you been listening this week? There comes a point in time that listening isn't enough. You need to respond. Have you been responding to his voice in your life? Well, anyhow, we see that there are these mountaintop experiences in the first section of Mark chapter 9. Heaven, you could say, literally touches earth. And we long for those times. I have to believe that's why you come to Syker year after year after year. When I hear people standing and saying they've been coming for 50, 60, 70, even into 80-something years, I have to believe that this is a mountaintop experience for them where heaven touches earth. And we long for those times, but we can't stay there because life happens in the valley. And you'll remember that the goal of the kingdom is not to hide away on the mountaintop somewhere. The goal of the kingdom is to get the power, the glory of the mountaintop down to the valley of living so that lives can be transformed, so that situations can be trained. And we see this in a very real way today. Because as they're coming down, the, the argument has stopped, it seems, or at least the direction has changed. Because now, instead of saying, you're not going to die, you're not going to Jerusalem, the main question that they have is, what is Jesus talking about, this resurrection stuff? 
And it's not because they didn't believe in resurrection. They did believe in resurrection. They just believed it was coming at the end of time. And now Jesus is saying, at least for himself, it's going to occur pretty soon. But as they walk into the valley of living, chaos has ensued. If heaven touched earth on the mountaintop, it's not too strong to say that all hell has broken loose in the valley. And we see that the genesis of this crowd this fussing crowd, this, this, this grabbing crowd, is that there is a father in the midst of it all who has brought his son. We know that because as Jesus walks right into the middle of that mess, aren't you thankful that we have a Jesus who's willing to walk into the middle of our messes? I'm thankful as a 15-year-old boy in 1987, Jesus walked right into the middle of my mess and I have never been the same. He walks into that mess, and he confronts the religious leadership, and he says, what are you all talking about? What are you disputing? What are you arguing? What are you fussing about with them, the remaining nine disciples? And then we hear the Father. Now, there's no reason to believe that he's part of the religious leadership. There's no reason to buy into that. He could be, but we don't know for sure. But the Father speaks an accusative statement to Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, I brought my boy to you. And I want you to say, it's not, don't, don't spiritualize it. It's not light. It, it, he's got this angst within him. There's this anxiety. How do we know? Because he goes on to describe the circumstance that his son is living with. He's overcome with an evil or a mute spirit. Now, I said it the other day. I'll say it again. Isn't it interesting that evil always wants to take away our sight and always wants to take away our hearing? wants to take away our voice. Because if he can rob us of our hearing, we can never hear the good news. If he can remove us the sight from our eyes, we're not able to see. And if he can get a hold of our voice, we'll never be able to tell what's possible. He's overcome with an evil spirit. And that takes it out of the physical realm. There's a lot of people that want to keep it in the physical realm, and it's definitely manifesting itself in this way, but there's something greater going on. There is a war that is happening. There is a battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. Those are the only two options. You're in one or the other. There is no in-between, and it seems that the kingdom of darkness has claimed this boy as their own. It sees that he's overcome with this mute spirit, and at times, it's throws him into the fire. It throws him into the water. You can hear it. He's afraid that his son's life is going to end if something doesn't change. I brought my boy to you because he had heard what Jesus could do. Because he had seen perhaps what had happened when the kingdom goes public. But he says, well, it's not said, but it's implied. I brought my boy to you, but you weren't here. Remember, they're up on the mounts, Jesus and the big mounts. You weren't here, so I looked to them. Now, who are they? Of course, the remaining nine disciples, the ones who have been left behind in the valley. I looked to them to do for my boy what I brought him to you to do, but they couldn't do it. I want you to hear that declaration it should be heartbreaking because I told you the kingdom of darkness has claimed this one as their own. And now 
the representatives of the kingdom of light are powerless against the darkness. Nine men, and don't be mistaken, just because they were left in the valley didn't mean they bought into the plan. They weren't looking for a suffering servant Messiah either. They were expecting a con- You know what that shows us? Just because we're quiet doesn't mean we're holy. Just because we're not the ones with the loudest voices, it doesn't mean that we're on board with the plan. And because they had been fussing and fighting with Jesus, bucking against the kingdom, the plan... The power that they once knew. Well, what do you know? mean once knew? Well, see, in case you're wondering, it's natural that the Father would say, you weren't here, so I looked to them. Why would it be natural? Read Mark chapter 6. We talked about it a little bit the other day, beginning in verse 7. I believe down through verse 12 or 13. This is the point where Jesus commissions his men, sends them off two by two under the authority of the kingdom to do everything that he himself had been doing. And since they operate under the authority of the kingdom, everything that he had been doing happens. Sick people are made well. People who are out of their minds are put in their right minds. Evil is defeated and light is victorious. It's natural that he looked, but see, they've been fussing. And I'll just remind you, You cannot rebel against kingdom authority and expect to operate in kingdom power. It's not your way. It's not my way. It's not their way. It's his way. I brought them to you, accusative. You weren't here, so I looked to them. And they couldn't do it. So I want you to notice the first thing that we see in the scene is that there is a father and son that has a very real need and he's come to the one place that that he felt could be the solution where he could find the answer and yet the disciples are powerless they're loud but they're powerless why would i say they're loud because they are in the middle of an argument We know that the religious leadership are confronting them. And remember, they are not the debater that Jesus was. They are not as eloquent. They are not as versed. And these men were trained debaters. And so we can see the argument going on between the religious leadership and the disciples because Jesus goes to them and says, what are you arguing about? Why would I even bring that up? Because we are tempted many times, even as God's people, to fuss and fight with one another. And usually I found that the things that we choose to fuss and fight about are non-essential things, things that don't really matter. And I would urge you, put that childishness aside. Grow beyond that. There are some things more important than getting your way. There are some things more important than being right. Because what we see here with the Father and a very real need is that their arguing isn't remedying the situation. It's not doing a thing for the need. See, what it is, when we like to fuss and fight about non-essential things, we are like a bunch of cooks fighting over recipes while there are people who are dying of hunger. 
We have all the ingredients. We can put it together and we can feed them. But we would rather fight about the way it's done than doing it itself. We see the fighting disciples. And the only thing that fighting does, it's true then, it's true now, always has been, always will be. Fussing, arguing, always leads to frustration. Have you noticed that? It leads, it doesn't help the father and son. I've already said that. It doesn't remedy the, the, the circumstance. Instead, it just frustrates them. It always does. You see that frustration played out in many different ways. You see the frustrations in the Pharisees. Now remember, they've been frustrated ever since uh, Jesus marched on the scene in Mark chapter 2. I mean, they haven't liked it. You see their frustration playing out. You see the disciples' frustration. They're powerless, and now they're being over taken by these people who are wiser and smarter than them. You hear the father's frustration in that accusative statement, I brought my boy to you. So I looked to them, but they couldn't do it. You see frustration over every aspect of the story, even, even when it comes to love. Now hold your thought just there for a moment because before I move on, I just want to, I don't think I need to, I shouldn't need to, but I'm going to say this, arguing disciples are not feared by our enemy. You realize that? The enemy doesn't fear arguing disciples. The kind of disciples that he fears, and we see this later in Jesus' teaching on the disciples' failure, are those who are dependent and desperate for him. Jesus will later say, this kind of kingdom power can only come out, will only be revealed through dependency, prayer, and fasting, desperation. The only type of disciple that the enemy fears are those who are dependent, those who are desperate, who know that it's not in themselves. They can't pull this off. The only way that it can happen is if he does it through them. They need him. And by the way, we need him. Those are the disciples that are feared by the enemy. The arguing only screams out the accusation. They can't do it. They speak a good game. But when it gets down to it, it's all talk. So we see the frustration. We see frustration's result. But we hear frustration even in Jesus' response. Love's frustration. Oh, faithless generation. Now, Matthew is interesting here. Remember, Mark was our first. I like to throw that out there because Mark doesn't get a lot of respect. A lot of people will say, well, that's just half of the gospel. No, Mark was first. Matthew and Luke are just a little bit more long-winded. They expound on things. But we see that Matthew will throw in perverse, and we won't stay there. But I'll just say this. There's nothing more perverse than claiming to be something that you are not. You see it all over the text. The Pharisees claimed to be concerned about God and his kingdom. They weren't. They were concerned about them. The disciples claimed to be concerned about Jesus and the kingdom. They weren't. They wanted it their way. Remember all these arguments, wanting to be the greatest, wanting to sit on the left and the right, wanting to be somebody here and now, present in glory. 
There is nothing more perverse than claiming him as Messiah but refusing to embrace the cross. There's nothing more dangerous. That's why so many people in the world today are confused as to what Christianity is. That's why so many people have been turned off because it's not good enough just to say, I know you're the Messiah, but not take up your cross and follow him all the way. It's an incredible picture. And really, the language that Mark uses carries with it the idea of a duplicitousness, a duplicity within their mind. That's why you could say what's being said. Oh, faithless, you you two-faced people, You act as though you're concerned about this when you're really concerned about something else. You've got everybody else fooled around you, but you're not fooling the Father. You're not fooling me. How much longer? How much more do you sense love's frustration? I want you to understand that because some of us have this idea that it doesn't have Jesus looks at them, and it's, okay, you guys don't like me saying he gets frustrated, but it's frustrating. How much longer? But here's the wonderful thing about love's frustration. It never stays around for long. Because in an instant, love's frustration is transformed into love's invitation. Oh, faithless generation, how much longer do I bear with you? How much longer must I be with you? Put up with you. Frustration, but listen to invitation. Bring him to me. That's so powerful. And I think maybe if some of us would get a hold of that this morning, we might smile. Because when we hear him saying, Moving from frustration, how much longer you two-faced people to bring him to me. It reminds me that Jesus can do what we fail to do. It reminds me that in him, the ability is there to, 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 to do what we cannot do. I want you to listen in the context of our story. Love's invitation to the father of this boy. A father who is feeling frustration. A father who is feeling anxious. A father whose heart is heavy for the need of his son. And Jesus says, bring him to me. It's almost as though we can sense his heart. Don't be frightened by the crowd that's gathered around you. Don't be intimidated by the quarreling that's going on on every corner. Don't be discouraged by the frustration that you're experiencing. And don't feel paralyzed by your own inability to do anything about it. Why? Bring him to me. There is possibility in love's invitation. Let me change that just a little bit. I told you I haven't done that in a while. So let me just change it. There is un limited possibility in love's invitation. Why would I change it to unlimited? Because remember the text. Bring, the the father was saying, if you can do anything, it's verses 22 and 23, remember his request. If you can do anything, May I ask you this morning, how big might anything be? 
or how small might it be? It's pretty broad. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And then Jesus, I, I, I love this statement. I, I, the, I, I'm reading out of the New King James Bible, and the translation doesn't bring it out, but it, the better translation than some of your texts will say it like this. He says, if you can do anything, Jesus' response is, if you can? Don't you love that? Oh, come on. Wake up for just one minute. Think about this. Here he is. He's there. If you can do anything, and Jesus says, if? You don't like that? If you can? Then he goes on. All things are possible to him who believes. Now, let me ask you this. How big is all? What are, or what is, what are all things? Come on, it's not a trick question. It's, it, it's, it's all things. The Father is saying, if you can do anything, it doesn't matter how small, it doesn't matter how big, if you can do anything, have mercy on us. And he says, what do you mean? If I can, all things are possible to him who believes. So I want you to notice, Jesus always has a way of turning things around. Now we watch. The question really isn't if. The question is whether or not. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's look first at the requirement of love's invitation. Bring him to me. All things are possible if you believe. So what is the requirement in response to love's invitation? Simply put, believe. I, I love that. I love the way Jesus answers it. Because he doesn't say, well, I'll do this for you if you deserve it. That's how we do sometimes, right? I get weary sometimes of, oh, I better watch myself, I'm not going to say it. I'm growing up, uh, as a 49-year-old man, I finally stopped something instead of letting it out. It's not, well, if you're willing to work hard enough for it. It's not even if you love the most. No, the only requirement simply stated, if you believe all things are possible. So here's the reversal. The question is no longer whether or not Jesus can. The question now becomes, can the Father or will the Father believe that he can? It's a difference there. Will the Father believe that he can? Because we see the only requirement is belief. There's not even a qualification of measurement of belief, belief that one must have. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm glad Jesus didn't say, as long, along with those, those other things, he didn't say, well, if you have great faith. Any of you ever heard that term? I've used it referring to people. I've known people who have had great faith. 
I admire people who everything can be spinning out of control, and yet they stand firm on what they know is true. I look up to those kind of people with great faith, but see, here's the thing. I'll confess to you. I don't think I have great faith. I want to have great faith, but remember, I get on my own nerves. I'm analytical, obsessive-compulsive. God helps me with those things. I want greater faith. I have greater faith than I ever have, but I want greater faith. But there are times in my life that I lay in bed and I worry. I know that he's in my yesterday today and he's already in my tomorrow. I have no need to worry, but I lay there and I worry anyway. It's not holy to say I worry, but I do. He doesn't say great faith. In fact, can, can we just remember that Jesus' standard for faith, remember the mustard seed? If you could have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed. And my whole life, I, I had heard that the mustard seed is the smallest seed there is. But now there's this debate that it's not. And I'm just going to say, I don't care. I really don't. I don't care. It's pretty small. That's the qualification. That's the standard of measurement. If you can believe. All things are possible. So we move from love's invitation to the response to that invitation in verse 24. And I want you to hear the unfeigned honesty of the Father. I want you to hear his voice through his tears. I mean, I love this statement. As you watch the scene unplaying, he says, I believe Help my unbelief. Can you find any more raw of a statement than this? Such honesty that's displayed, the transparent nature of the Father's response, because in his words, I believe, help my, you see faith mixed with fear and unbelief. You hear a cry from deep within his heart that he knew was beyond himself if help was going to come. You hear his heart, if anything is going to happen, if anything's going to change, Jesus, you're the only hope, you're the only source. I believe, help my unbelief. That's all that Jesus needed to hear. Because in verse 25, we have Jesus' response to the honesty of the Father. I wonder how many of us are willing to just get honest with him. And in his response, you see the authority of the Son displayed he gives the command to the evil that, has, evil that these men had no power against. He gives this command, come out and enter him no more. Hear this, because there's no chance of relapse. Come out of him and enter him. There's not going to be a requirement of rehab. Come out of them. It's a total work. Aren't you thankful that we have a God that does things completely? Trying to get you thankful for that. You're not any more thankful this morning than you were the other time I asked you. He, does, he doesn't half do it. 
We watch when the voice of authority speaks, it must be obeyed. The evil does not have a choice. We watch as he leaves and all of a sudden the boy becomes a corpse. He becomes as one dead and everybody around says, oh look, he's dead. And then we see Jesus as the conqueror over all evil as he reaches down his arm and he grabs the arm of that young boy, that child, that son, and lifts him up into new life, a completely restored creation. Isn't that an incredible picture? Why would I, why would I bring that up on Wednesday morning because I want you to remember, the story shows us it's not about our faith. Hold, hold with me. I'm, I, I hear what I'm saying. It, it, it's not about, we can have faith in a lot of things. And in fact, we do have faith in a lot of things. Instead, it's about the one in whom our faith is placed. That's what we see in this story. If you can believe, all things are possible. He can. Will we? So let me ask you this. What are you believing God for? I feel as though the fact that you're here this morning, you're believing him for something. For some, you're believing for a closer relationship. For some, there may be a deep need. Maybe there's a deep spiritual need. Those are the most important things, you know that, but maybe there's an emotional need. Maybe there's a physical need. Well, what are you believing him for? A familial need? Do you believe that he's able to do in your life, in that circumstance, what needs to be done? I've got to be very careful here because I do not want to give you the idea that I'm preaching, well, if you can believe it, it will be yours. No, I mean, we always base our belief upon the Word of God. We said that the other night, that's where the foundation of our faith is found. And if your foundation of faith is there, you're not going to say, well, I'm believing for a million dollars. Let's, let's get beyond that silliness. Because there are many times in my life that I think I need something and I tell him about it, but then after he moves, I realize what I needed was not what I thought I needed, it's what he... Isn't there comfort in knowing that he knows what we need? And that he will give us exactly what we need exactly when we need it? What are you believing him for today? What... Do you need him, believing him to do in your life, in your circumstance? Whatever that may be, I want you to hear love's invitation. Bring it to me. Bring that broken relationship to me. Bring that physical need to me. Bring that financial concern to me, that relational, whatever it may be, 
hear love's invitation. And I'm so excited that I can say that. Why? Because you realize the word of God is not dead. It's living, it's active. This is the written word that reveals the living word that ushers us into the resurrected word's presence. Therefore, when Jesus stood in the valley of living in the chaos of the mess of everything that's going on and he spoke those words, bring him to me. It's an invitation that has echoed, that has heralded across the ages. It comes to you in your circumstance. It comes to me in my circumstance. And all we need to do is respond because love's invitation is still unlimited. There's unlimited possibility. There is still invincible authority for the honor heart that will cry out I believe and maybe get so real as to saying help my unbelief bring him to me I'm reminded of the words oh and I'm convicted by it because I'm preaching to myself this morning. Maybe that's why I needed to go back five years. I'm preaching. You just get to listen but I'm reminded of the words oh what peace we often forfeit because we don't heed love's invitation. So Jesus, this morning, thank you for these good people. Thank you for knowing us better than we know ourselves. Thank you for speaking the words that we needed to hear individually. Now help us respond. Amen.